Okay, welcome everybody. These lights are bright. <laughs> um, welcome to this session on getting traction on great power risks. A talk from Sir Adam Thompson on the nature of the catastrophic and existential risks we face, including nuclear risks. How they are meaningfully different from those of 60 years ago and how we should reassess how we tackle the single greatest driver of them, great power cooperation. So Adam Thompson, KCMG, has been the director of the European Leadership Network since November 2016. Before joining ELN, Sir Adam had a 38-year diplomatic career in the British Diplomatic Service, preceded by short spells at the World Bank and Harvard. His final diplomatic posting was as a UK permanent representative to NATO between 2014 and 2016. Prior to that, from 2010, Sir Adam served as British High Commissioner to Pakistan, and between 2002 to 2006, he was British uh, Ambassador and Deputy Permanent Representative to the United Nations in New York. So as a reminder, please submit your questions via the Swapcard app, and I'll ask a mixture of those and pre-prepared questions. Uh, but please join me in welcoming Sir Adam. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, and, and thank you for coming and uh, for being willing to listen. Uh, I'm really grateful for this opportunity. Uh, preparing these remarks has helped me develop my thinking, uh, and I hope our discussion will take things further. I, I realize I need to apologize in advance. No slides, just a boring kind of diplomat's speech. Um, uh, it's going to take me about 35 minutes, I'm afraid, uh, but I hope there's a little bit of time for questions and uh, there's office hours afterwards. Um, uh, I'm simply a uh, former practitioner uh, and current mitigator of great power risk. Uh, I'm not an effective altruist uh, and I cannot offer the sort of rigorous analysis of a moral philosopher or an international relations theorist. But uh, for reasons I will argue, the practitioner's view counts for something in this area, I think. So, uh, in The Precipice, Toby Ord writes that great power competition is a greater driver of existential risk than all natural risks combined. I'd go a lot further and argue that great power competition is the single greatest driver of anthropogenic risk, existential risk. That's not just because of the direct risk of great power war, but because great power competition is such a massive risk factor if you think about it, great powers generate the existentially risky technologies. They are the states most likely to deploy them. Their confrontations drive the risks of use. They are central to multilateral risk reduction, and yet they can and do block it, for example, on arms control uh, or climate change. Whatever the exact probabilities, uh, if I am right, then getting traction on great power risk ought to be an extremely high priority for the EA community. There's been some useful attention, I believe, in the community to modeling great power war, less attention 
to modeling great power dynamics as a risk factor, and almost no attention that I know of, I hope you'll correct me, uh, to what I want to focus on, the question of tractability. Tractability is, in Toby Ord's terms, I think, a neglected risk. For me, tractability is a personal problem, not just a policy one. My organization, the European Leadership Network, is dedicated to the prevention of existential conflict in Europe and beyond. If I cannot show what, that what we do has traction, we'll go out of business and deserve to do so. So uh, getting traction on great power risk is something we think hard about. That is the first of my general points. Great power risk is important and doing something about it is neglected. Neglected not just by the EA community, who probably think getting traction is too hard, but neglected by the great powers themselves, to the intense frustration of the rest of the international community. So now I want to offer four further highly compressed framing points about traction, and then in the second half of my remarks, try to derive five practical recommendations for getting traction. My uh, next framing point, therefore, is to acknowledge that getting traction on great power risk, yes, is not only hard, but getting harder. Uh, if you think about this in terms of locking in positive dynamics for humanity's long-term future, then as matters stand, with each passing year, we are at greater risk of getting locked out. Not just because relations between the great powers, the West, Russia, China, or India and Pakistan, or in the Middle East, are awful, highly dangerous, and difficult to overcome, but for much more structural reasons, too. As time passes and technologies proliferate, there will be more and more key state and non-state players to be involved in negotiating risk reduction. There will be more and more technologies with a direct or indirect bearing on existential risk to be factored in. And on current trends, there will be more and more entanglement and interplay between these technologies and these risks to be considered. The challenges of even nuclear risk reduction, which I think is the easiest, are an order of magnitude more complex than 60 years ago in the aftermath of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Simplistically, then there was one risk, nuclear, two actors, Washington and Moscow, no technologies impacting the decision-making, the nuclear decision-making, except the difficulty of communication. Now, uh, at least, Climate, AI, and nuclear are in a complex dance. There are nine nuclear states, and there are all sorts of technologies, deep fakes, spoofing, AI, cyber, uh, and half a dozen more impacting decision-making in a crisis. So uh, to be a little controversial, I think in this respect, nuclear too is a neglected risk. Uh, we haven't updated. Uh, enough in the last 60 years. That brings me to my third framing point. Really important, uh, it is traction is still possible. 
Uh, and this is really important as a point. The feeling of hopelessness that it's all too difficult and that we as individuals cannot make a difference is the biggest turnoff to engagement and doing anything about it. But if indeed great power competition is the single greatest driver of anthropogenic risk, then at the moment, we're in luck. There are very few great powers. For the moment, they control most current and near future existential risk. And if the United States, China, and Russia, just those three, acted to reduce the existentially risky dynamics between them, that would make lesser risks between them more manageable and make it a whole lot easier for other existentially risky states to follow suit. So I'd argue we only need traction on a small number of key states in order to reduce a huge chunk of existential risk. It's an attractive proposition. Moreover, uh, we aren't talking about trying to end all great power competition or even confrontation. We only need traction on the existential risks. Historically, there has been traction on nuclear in bad times as well as good, and there is very recent evidence of continuing traction on nuclear. Last January, the leaders of China, France, Russia, the United States, and the UK collectively declared that the avoidance of war between nuclear powers and the pursuit of strategic risk reduction were their foremost responsibilities. And I'm proud that the ELN played the leading NGO role in securing that declaration. And even more recently, when the US, China, and India piled in on Putin last October, he drew back on threats of nuclear use. My fourth framing thought is that governments are a problem. Uh, no offense to any of those who are working in government at the moment. Uh, I've been there, believe me. Uh, if you want to improve traction on existential risk, for goodness sake, don't leave it just to governments. And I say that after 38 years working quite a lot of the time on uh, British nuclear policy in government. Yes, uh, governments are indispensable to traction. Only states take the big security decisions, and what we want is traction on those decisions. But great power dynamics make traction uniquely hard. They sit astride deeply emotional historical divides. Just think where they are, Korea or Middle East or South Asia uh, or Europe. Uh, uh, nuclear and in future other existential deterrence allows those emotions to be nursed and rallied in jingoistic nationalism. Uh, great powers can and do ignore the rest of the world. Uh, worse, existential capabilities are part of their national identities. And as the Ukraine war shows, precisely because great powers have such capabilities, they do risky, coercive things. So what's in it for them to give up such capabilities? I think that's where practitioners like the ELN come in. 
If you haven't done the diplomacy, where are you going to find the answers? So my fifth and final framing thought is about effective altruism and the art of the possible. Uh, I just don't think, from what I know from the outside, that EA is paying enough attention to diplomacy. The mathematical clarity of Newtonian long-termism starts to buckle, in my view, into relativity and quantum mechanics the closer you get to the present. And I just don't think that EA is paying enough attention to the reality that if existential risk is to be reduced peacefully rather than by catastrophe, uh, it must be reduced across all the owners of the existential means. Because if any single one of them holds out, none of the others will give up their own existential capabilities. We focus, therefore, too much on the things we find it easiest to change, on Western solutions, in other words, and not on what works for Russia or China. Just a couple of examples of what I'm talking about. Uh, what if you have to choose, as we currently do in the real world, between keeping Russian and Western minds open to each other for possible long-term traction, or making the confrontation over Ukraine worse in the short term, actually making it more dangerous uh, in order to make it sufficiently painful that the adversary doesn't do the bad thing again? Or alternatively, what are the ethics of putting existential risk reduction, of pursuing existential risk reduction with an accused war criminal? Once again, there may be a role for practitioners of international politics and diplomacy, people who understand their own side and the adversary and can speak with both. So, to sum up the first half of my remarks, great power risk is important, it is tractable, the art of traction is neglected, time is short, the dynamics are a real problem, uh, and even heuristics may take you only so far. So, uh, as a practitioner, what steps do I actually recommend for traction? Uh, I want to offer you five practical steps, non-exhaustive. First, and this is a serious point, if you're interested, you need to take a deep breath and acquire both strategic patience and resilience against setbacks. There are no silver bullets like, I don't know, bed nets for malaria. This is not just for the long haul, this is forever. Second, because the traction problem is hard and it's getting worse, please commit EA brain power and resources to it. You are international, multidisciplinary, you think in fresh ways where Government and even NGO approaches to great power risk reduction are siloed, stale, and thus almost by definition inadequate to the task. So, we need you. Third, mobilize your EA network. Because governments are necessary but not sufficient, embrace and support the power of non-governmental networks 
networks can think thoughts, float ideas, say things, convene people, go places, build bridges in ways that governments simply cannot. Because existential risk reduction has to be for the long haul, we should think about institutionalizing networks of uh, NGO networks around the globe. For example, just an idea, create an international civil society organization under the UN umbrella for the regulation of great power competition like the Global Compact does for business. Now, apologies, sorry, Sim, uh, 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 now for a short commercial break uh, to illustrate this network point. The European Leadership Network, I'm just illustrating with what we do uh, so that uh, it, you get an idea of what can be done. It's an independent, non-partisan, intergenerational, pan-European network of some 400 experienced and emerging leaders from virtually all Euro-Atlantic countries who are committed to the prevention of existential conflict. Between them and their sister network, the Asia-Pacific network, they speak all the great power languages. They have worked in all the great power governments. They are influential in their media and societies, and they can access all the great power leaders. The strength of their non-governmental guerrilla diplomacy lies in their diversity. They range from former NATO secretaries general to Russian military intelligence generals, to business people, to former heads of the KGB, to economists, to AI experts, and disinformation combatants. They agree on very little except the need for greater mutual security. My team's job is to create coalitions of willing network members to achieve that greater security. The potential for traction in support of, alongside, and despite governments is, I think, extraordinary and unique. Fourth uh, practical suggestion. Alongside tools for traction, you need ideas. Right now, the scope for traction is sharply narrowed, in my view, by dangerous ideas about how to do great power competition in the existential era. Because risk reduction is the art of the possible, we need to expand what is possible by countering these ideas and promoting enabling ideas about what might be called existential diplomacy. I am not Panglossian about this. I don't believe great power competition will ever disappear. States have a duty to their citizens to hang tough. It's a mean world out there. If you neglect the reality of human competition and instinct for war, your diplomacy will be trampled in the dust of your adversary's invasion. But states also have a duty not to exterminate their citizens. If great powers just focus on deterring their adversaries with all their existential capabilities, but without diplomacy in the service of existential risk reduction, they cannot hope 
to have, uh, to live, excuse me, indefinitely without uh, existential catastrophe. So what might this re-engineered existential diplomacy look like? Uh, I think it includes uh, insulating, compartmentalizing existential risk reduction from the rest of great power competition. Uh, this can be done. Uh, it has been done in the last Cold War. In time for this weekend's G7 summit, the ELN and APLN launched an appeal from 248 thought leaders, six of them uh, former heads of state, in 50 states, including Russia, China, the USA, India, Pakistan, the UK, and France, to protect nuclear arms control. We're going to continue with that campaign. We need to skewer the bad ideas that block traction, uh, historical myths, essentialism, collective punishment of populations, especially in autocratic states, and anthropomorphic foreign policy, where you treat states as if they were individuals and cut off communication when your uh, adversary behaves badly, as if you can sort of send them to Coventry and that will make things better. We should promote ideas more likely to deliver traction. Effective altruism is one of them. Uh, another is structured all-weather communication between adversaries. Uh, my colleague John Gower uh, and Catalink can speak to that. Uh, the importance of understanding the adversary and yourself for the sake of mutual survival, a less fashionable idea. The fact that deterrence can be pursued at lower risk and lower cost through arms control, the need to encourage statesmanship and an admiration for diplomacy. It's crazy that these ideas are so deeply unfashionable in 2023, pretty much on all sides. That's not because they are unrealistic uh, or uh, inevitable. 30 years ago, most of those ideas were common currency. Fifth and finally, I'm almost done. Because traction grows with evidence of traction, alongside tools, including non-governmental ones, and ideas, better ones, for traction, you need some implementation. Uh, so in parallel to building the mindsets necessary for existential diplomacy, use your networks to push for great power risk reduction. In fact, reducing risk is diplomacy and vice versa. Some thoughts on this. Sequencing matters uh, for implementation. You, you get better results if you do things in the right order in, in the real world diplomatically. And right now, uh, the concepts, uh, the, 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 the ideas about how you manage great power competition uh, in uh, the existential era uh, matter more, in my view, than uh, early arms control. So perhaps we should next get P5 leaders to broaden their January 2022 statement about nuclear risk with one declaring that, 
quote, existential war cannot be won, must never be fought, and is a shared threat to be countered. We can work to persuade the P5 that if they do not control the existential risks themselves, others are going to acquire the existential means to coerce them. I think you have to work with the grain of the great power problem, not against it. Uh, I'm happy to talk about uh, TPNW, the Treaty on the Prevention of uh, Nuclear War uh, in questions. Uh, I think the main great powers have an increasingly pressing shared interest in building on the 1968 Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty with a treaty or something similar uh, on the non-proliferation of existential risk. When it comes to implementation, uh, we can start with what great powers know roughly how to do. That's just so much easier. Climate risk reduction may be less politicized and more visual than nuclear, but there's a longer track record of doing nuclear arms control. Nuclear is the currency in which great powers still deal and still talk. It is more ver easily verifiable, in my judgment, than artificial intelligence or bio-risk reduction. And nuclear, rather than climate, is, I think, far more likely to unlock pathways to bio and AI risk reduction. So personally, I think it is crazy that in the EA world, so few organizations apart from Longview uh, are working on nuclear. Uh, it's a field that is massively under-resourced compared to AI or climate or possibly even bio. And finally, uh, build the human capacity for negotiation and arms control. So if you're looking for a, a career, there's a good one. Work through and protect the existing institutions of international governance and risk reduction. The United Nations, for all its faults, the IAEA, the BTWC, despite its shortcomings, the climate change summits. Be prepared to reform them for greater inclusion, agility, and relevance if and when the adversary can convince you that this is for stability and not for unilateral advantage. And build the new institutions, national and international, that decade after decade, and in fact, if you're a long-termist, century after century, will lock in safer international behaviors with regard to catastrophic and existential risk and close the gate against more dangerous paths. Does all this sound hard? It does, that's because it is. Uh, but remember the good news, things could be a whole lot worse. And if we don't act, they probably will be. Finally, hold on to one further bit of good news. Wicked problems are ones where you don't even know what the question is. Getting traction on great power competition may be a knotty problem, but it's not a wicked one. We know pretty much what needs to be done. 
Thank you for listening. Shall I get... Great. Thanks very much. Um, and so it'll be great to hear a bit more about why you think nu nuclear is the sort of diplomatic pathway to reducing um, other kind of existential risks. A bit more about that. Okay, well, uh, I have to be careful about this because I know nuclear and have done it far more than I know or have done either AI or bio uh, or even climate. So I could be wrong, but I think there is a respectable set of reasons for supposing that if you're operating in the, the, the real world uh, of uh, sharp, great power confrontation, uh, massive distrust, mm -hmm. uh, that you're more likely to make early progress uh, on the nuclear dossier than uh, the others. Uh, I, in my remarks, said that I think uh, climate is another possible avenue. Um, I do a lot of work on Russia-West relations because of the organization I'm in, uh, and uh, climate is often touted as a, as, as a bridging issue. But uh, it seems to me that if it's not to say you shouldn't work on climate issues between great powers, and we have seen them uh, willing to come together uh, and make compromise. But my instinct is that progress between great powers on climate as a form of risk reduction and of, of, of trust building is much less likely to unlock uh, new thinking in security establishments of great powers uh, than nuclear would. Uh, and uh, it remains the case that although uh, a lot of the arms control expertise that existed uh, during the last Cold War on nuclear has atrophied, uh, nevertheless, uh, the nuclear states do know roughly how to do it, roughly what the issues are, roughly what the trade-offs uh, would be. Uh, so I don't think it is fantasy to uh, imagine uh, Russia coming back to strategic stability talks with the United States. I don't think it is fantasy to imagine the uh, P5 process inside the NPT uh, framework uh, resuming uh, greater uh, attention to strategic risk reduction. Uh, I don't think it is fantasy to imagine uh, uh, a, a, a P5 process of nuclear risk reduction, and that's one of the things uh, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing for. I find it personally uh, a, a very great deal harder to imagine a uh, US-China deal on AI risk reduction, uh, because uh, for either side to trust the other enough to do that, you'd have to have uh, intense verification. Uh, I think the same is true uh, on bio. Uh, the verification required to check out a Category 4 bio lab is a good deal more intrusive than what you need to be pretty confident that your adversary has dropped their 
nuclear capability. So that's, that's the argument. Uh, I think that some progress, which I, I, I think is imaginable in the next five years uh, on nuclear risk reduction, uh, could change the great power weather uh, enough to get them talking seriously on AI and bio. Mm -hmm. And why do you think this issue, not just with NEA, but sort of globally, is, is neglected, great power cooperation? I think, there's, uh, I'm, uh, th I think there are multiple reasons um, for great power competition. Uh, it's uh, above all, I think, because uh, we, the citizens, assume that this is government business. Mm -hmm. um, uh, it uh, is uh, also uh, very difficult. Uh, it does look difficult. Um, but what I'm telling you is that uh, actually doing AI existential risk reduction or bio is even harder. Um, uh, I, I think it uh, is partly the, the, the nature of great powerdom, as I have argued. Uh, it's hard for the international community to push great powers around. Uh, and I said I'd say something about TPNW. Uh, the, the, the recently uh, launched treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, uh, over 50 states have now ratified this. It's a, it's a UN uh, treaty, uh, uh, official international treaty, uh, uh, and it uh, seeks to outlaw the possession of nuclear weapons. So it's both a uh, manifestation of the intense anger in the global south and, and in other parts of the international community about the arrogance of, 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 of nuclear powers. Uh, but I think it is also uh, a, a somewhat misguided effort. Uh, it, in, in seeking to prohibit nuclear weapons, it does build a climate and strengthen a taboo that is helpful for non-proliferation, but it also causes the great powers to circle their wagons. Um, NATO, for example, uh, has no truck with TPNW. They won't even engage in debate uh, on it. Um, from my point of view, uh, it underlines for the P5 the importance of them getting their own act together. Mm -hmm. And then what's your view or ELN's view on that? Should we be aiming for a complete reduction in stockpiles to zero, or should we be keeping some nukes around for deterrence? Ideally, we would get to zero, mm -hmm. um, uh, as we would with all other existential risk, and we'd just get on with competing with each other without the capability of um, blowing ourselves apart. Uh, but uh, the British government uh, quite recently has uh, funded a, a, a useful exercise in which the ELN and uh, a number of other NGOs were involved uh, to examine the question of and the concept of nuclear irreversibility. How do you get to a place where you can't, uh, if you've got rid of all your nuclear weapons, you can't go back again? And that showed pretty conclusively that uh, irreversibility is a is a spectrum of possibility, and it's a, it's a continuous process. It's not an end state. Uh, there is no, especially if you're being long-termist about this, there is no way of forever ruling out nuclear weapons uh, unless uh, you 
create the institutions and the thinking uh, that uh, get rid of them. So we can head for zero, but it's, uh, it, 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 it's a constant effort. Mm -hmm. And you spoke a bit about governmental uh, powers and non-governmental powers. Um, what opportunities and limitations do both of those um, players have? So I've been rude about government um, because I feel I, I can, but I, I just like to say that uh, working in government and in politics uh, are honorable professions, uh, full of people uh, with good intentions, trying to make the world a better place. Uh, and, and importantly, it is, I think, for the absolutely foreseeable future, uh, it is going to be governments uh, that are the main players. Uh, but uh, governments uh, operate in bubbles uh, and they really need the external challenge and as I say the external support that uh, NGOs uh, can provide. Um, uh, I, I was head of the Foreign Office's Security Policy Department at a time in the late 1990s when the government was asking itself about Trident uh, renewal, and I distinctly remember sitting down to write the, the, the big policy paper and asking myself uh, whether I was going to argue for uh, retention of uh, nuclear capability for the United Kingdom or uh, uh, moving towards uh, getting rid of it because it's just too expensive uh, and it doesn't make a difference. Uh, and I, I asked myself, of course, which side my bread was buttered and uh, wrote accordingly. Uh, I don't have to do that now uh, that I'm outside government. Uh, so I think uh, you need both. Uh, it, it, it is not enough to rely on governments for existential risk reduction uh, because existential risk is part of what makes them great powers uh, and uh, it's, it, it, it's how they operate. Uh, so I, I, I renew my appeal uh, to uh, all of you uh, to think about uh, using your networks to actually make a difference to great power competition. And in terms of what non-governmental organizations can do, I guess when governments are at the point where they're not meeting each other principle to principle, I guess NGOs can potentially convene people in track to diplomacy and provide research when government Sort of agents are too busy to do their own research. Are there more specific examples of that that NGOs can do that governments can't? Well, yeah. Uh, uh, right now, uh, the ELN is dancing along the edge of what uh, sanctions allow us to do mm -hmm. uh, in order to go on talking to uh, interesting Russians, for example. Um, a government official just can't do that, uh, and uh, you know, unless he's Jake Sullivan. Uh, and, uh, I think you need more than just Jake Sullivan, frankly. Um, uh, so I, I really do believe that the uh, network approach to NGO activity uh, can be massively helpful uh, to governments. So it's not just a question of challenge. You know, we uh, float ideas uh, at government requests that governments don't want their fingerprints on. Uh, and that's a, a, a part of international diplomacy uh, that can make uh, quite a bit of a difference. Uh, you know, a tryout to see whether there's a positive response or not to something. Uh, are we getting questions from the floor? Yes. We are. Yeah. Okay, good. Great. Um, and so 
for people who want to work on this issue, what skills should they develop um, and what kind of career advice would you have for them? So uh, the, the, the very strong advice, I, I hope this doesn't sound sort of pontificating or anything or, 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 or particularly pious, but uh, if, if you want to make a difference internationally in a, in a positive way, you really have to culti cultivate understanding of the other. Uh, at the UN, I used to do an induction course for new arrivals to the UK mission, which invited uh, them to think what other countries in the UN membership, 194 countries altogether, were actually like the UK. And uh, if you go through the process of asking which countries believe in the rule of law, uh, which have an international orientation, uh, which are prepared occasionally to work for win-win solutions for the international community, and so on, uh, which uh, 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 are nuclear. Uh, basically, you come down to f discovering that the only people uh, that you might be able to talk to uh, on the same wavelength at the UN are the French, who have been the Brits' mortal enemies uh, for a, a thousand years. Um, that's a long way of saying that uh, the, the world is more different uh, uh, in mindset than it uh, looks physically, if you like. Mm -hmm. And unless you are understanding where the other guy is coming from, uh, unless you understand just exactly how paranoid uh, and uh, unpleasant the Russian state can be, for example, or how... Uh, I shouldn't, am I on the record? Yes, I am on the record, I won't say that. Um, uh, uh, I was going to say something about China, um, uh, and then I was going to go on to say something about the United States. Um, uh, unless you understand how, how different the, the cultures, including but not just confined to the strategic cultures uh, of uh, your adversary uh, or your partner are, you are not gonna do well. So that's, uh, sorry, long answer to the first part. I think if, you, if you're thinking about uh, a, a career, you really should think about politics or government. Uh, that's, that's where the power is uh, more than uh, in the NGO world. Uh, but I repeat, uh, and I do speak from unfortunately long experience, government is not the whole story. So the alternative is to make yourself filthy rich uh, and then buy influence, uh, as the EA community does. <laughs> Great, so um, uh, for us to get a sense of uh, what this work is like uh, and how it ends up coming into play, uh, could you share a story or two about a success of yours, a way that your work ended up helping? Um, alternatively, maybe some projects you were excited about, but it's less clear if they panned out in the end. Um, all the projects that I've been excited about and haven't panned out are because they haven't been funded. Um, I'm being flippant, but... Um, uh, so an example of, of where I think the European Leadership Network has made a difference um, uh, and, and, and got some traction, uh, is uh, on the P5, 
uh, and on that January 2022 statement by uh, P5 leaders. Uh, the P5 governments uh, were uh, uh, in a process uh, inside the NPT framework uh, where they were talking to each other about uh, nuclear doctrine, uh, but they weren't talking about uh, strategic risk reduction. They had been unable formally to agree that. Um, we used uh, very senior uh, ELN network members to talk in all, four, in all five capitals to uh, senior officials about the need for the P5 to agree uh, that a strand of work should be strategic risk reduction. That led to uh, the uh, uh, reference to strategic risk reduction in the P5 uh, leader's statement. That statement might not have come to pass had the ELN uh, not uh, identified President Macron, funnily enough, as the, as the last obstacle to the uh, statement, uh, put together a private letter uh, to him uh, from uh, very senior network members, former NATO sec gens and so on, uh, and got uh, it hand-delivered to the Elysee uh, by an ELN uh, network member. Uh, that, uh, we also were involved, but did not pay quite such a leading role in the other uh, aspect of that January statement, uh, which was a, an affirmation of the Reagan-Gorbachev formula that a nuclear war cannot be won and must never be fought. So uh, we think we made uh, a material difference to a public statement by President Xi, President Putin, President Biden, uh, President Macron, and that lovely man, Boris Johnson, to uh, say that their foremost responsibilities were to prevent nuclear war and to pursue strategic risk reduction. Of course, they didn't mean it. Uh, I talked to the British National Security Advisor in advance, and he said, we know Putin is cynical about it, but the argument is that it's still worth having. Uh, the international community, the Global South, can quote that back, that statement back to all those leaders, notably currently President Putin. Uh, it fueled the G20 statement that uh, threats of nuclear weapons use were inadmissible. Uh, it's a small, small bit of building block uh, for nudging uh, the world in a less dangerous direction. Mm -hmm. And then to close us off, if there's one or two takeaways you'd want people to uh, leave this talk with, what would they be? Okay, um, two. Uh, uh, one is that uh, I, 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 I don't know the EA community really well, uh, but I think you've got to a point of policy maturity as a community where it is time to think about how you actually do implementation. Uh, and, the, uh, and, and, and that, I think, takes you to thinking about great power risk. Yeah. Uh, and uh, my second would be uh, that I, I would urge you all to continue uh, the, the great work that is being done on uh, all sorts of issues, but to lift nuclear uh, up 
as uh, uh, something that is once again taken rather more seriously. It's not sexy like AI. It's not virgin territory, uh, I, I, I grant you. Uh, and uh, the work to shape the AI policy space is extremely important. But uh, as I argued, um, nuclear is, 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 is in important senses a whole new subject again because it's just just way, way different than it was uh, in even the 1990s, let alone the 1960s. Great. Thank you so much. Please join me in, in thanking Sir Adam. Thank you.